Amen. You may be seated and welcome. It's great to see you uh, this Sunday afternoon or this Sunday morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black ones in front of you. And you can find the fifth chapter of John on page 837 in those as we look into God's Word and see what He has to say for us today. Well, he grew up in Arlington Heights, Illinois. He got his degree in journalism at the University of Missouri, went on to Yale and got his law degree. He got a job, uh, first of all, as an attorney, and then he became an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. After that, he became a, an assistant editor at the, at the Herald Tribune in the Chicago area. Life was good for this successful atheist. His suburban life, mostly uneventful. Then one day, his wife comes home and declares that she's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Turned his life completely upside down. All of a sudden, as an attorney and as an investigative journalist, he's, he is, he's committed to prove her wrong to prove that Jesus is not who he says he was, that he is not God, that he is not the Messiah. So he approached this this mission with vigor, like he did everything else. He was going to prove her wrong. And he accumulated a host of witnesses to testify that what would be for him the trial of all trials. The evidence that he found was overwhelming. His conclusion was definitive. So what did he find? Well, we'll get back to that in a little while at the end of the message. But when we come to John chapter 5, the evidence of Jesus' deity is mounting. The religious leaders, though, are not having it. In fact, they wanted to kill him. They didn't accept him as God, but they saw him as a blasphemer, which is punishable by death. So what Jesus does is he mounts a defense to prove that he is who he says he is, that he is deity. And and first what he does is he declares who he is, and we saw that last week in verses 19 through 29. And then what he does is he puts five different witnesses on the stand to testify on his behalf. We're going to be in a courtroom today. And you're going to be the jury. As Jesus stands in his own defense, what we want you to do is we want you to determine, is Jesus, as C.S. Lewis puts so succinctly, is he lunatic? Is he liar? Or is he Lord? And if he's Lord, then what are you going to do with that? So let's look at three different aspects of this trial. First, the indictment, and then we're going to look at his defense, and then we're going to call some witnesses. First of all, the indictment. We see that in verse 18 of chapter 5. Remember, Jesus has healed this paralytic. He did it on the Sabbath. And then he says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And verse 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the indictment. The charge against Jesus was he was considering himself. He was calling himself God. But Jesus doesn't retreat and say, well, I have nothing to say in my defense. But he gives a lengthy defense. In fact, what he does is he, he gives six claims to his deity. Let me just give them to you quickly. First of all, he says in verses 19 and 20, he says, I am equal with God. Look at verse 19. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. I am equal with God, he was saying. He was saying he basically has a unique relationship with the Father. It's a picture of the Trinity. David spoke of that last week. Secondly, he says that he is the the giver of life. Look at verse 21. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is the giver of life. In fact, look at what it says in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the giver of life. We'll see that in John chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. We see that also in in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy made us alive with him in Christ. He says, I'm equal with God. I'm the giver of life. Third, he says, I am the final judge. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? The son. All judgment he has given to the son. Fourth, I determine man's destiny. Jesus is the one that determines our destiny. We see that in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus determines man's destiny, meaning Jesus determines your destiny. Fifth, he says, I will raise the dead. We see that in verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus will raise the dead. And finally, the final part of his defense, he says, I always do the will of the Father. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
because they both have the same will. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Jesus claims in his defense here that he is God, a claim that no one else on earth could ever claim. So now we move to the witness portion of this trial. In fact, when you look at verses 31 through 40, actually through verse 40, what you see is 10 different times you see the word witness or testify or testimony. They all come from the same Greek word. They all come from the same Greek word, the root of the same Greek word, which is where we get the word martyr. Ten different times, so you know that that is the main, uh, that is the main idea of this whole passage. And so as the jury, Jesus wants you to consider the facts. Again, he stands as his own defense attorney, and in verse 31, he starts out by making a very interesting statement. Look at it with me, if you will. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And what does he mean by that? Why would he say my testimony is not true? Does that mean that Jesus tells us things that aren't true? He's actually speaking in legal terms here. He's saying that his testimony alone is not admissible as evidence. In fact, according to the Old Testament law, it is, it is admissible if and only if it's corroborated by two or three other witnesses. In fact, we see that back in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Let me put it on the screen for you. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15. He says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, Jesus is speaking here to the Jews. And in that body of Jews are the scribes, those that, that, that would, would copy the, the, the scrolls, and the Pharisees, those that were, the, were experts in keeping the law. And he knew if he tried to stand and, and make his defense only on his testimony, verses 19 through 30, they would throw it out. So what he's going to do is he's going to introduce us to five witnesses that corroborate the evidence. And so that's what we see taking place here. So he calls, well, let me do this. Let me just read this passage first and then we'll come back. Starting in verse 31. Jesus is speaking. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive me. You will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus now calls his first witness. And his first witness is John the Baptist, the forerunner. Look at verse 33. He said, you sent to John. Meaning, when John, was out in the, when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, you sent to him an emissary. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you, so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He's looking at these religious leaders, and he's saying, this John the Baptist, he's the one you sent an emissary to when he was out in the wilderness. He was the one that you said, this is kind of a weird guy. He dresses weird. He, he, he eats weird food. He was the one you, you asked, who are you? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 21? They were asking him, who are you? He said, are you Elijah? He says, no. They asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? He said, no. And then he said, I am not the Christ. So they said, who are you then? Remember what he said? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He was, he was reminding them that according to the prophecies of Malachi, that he is the one that would be, go before the Messiah. He says, I am not the light, but I bear witness about the light. So they ask, who is the light? And he says, don't you remember? I'm the one that says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's testimony. And he's like, but you didn't hear it. I am the prophesied forerunner who goes before the promised one. So John the Baptist was Jesus' primary witness here in the world. So then he calls his second witness. Jesus' own works. Look at verse 34. Look at verse 36. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, I have a greater witness than John the Baptist. You just have to open your eyes. The witness is the works that I do. The miracles that I do. Now, what was the purpose of miracles? The purpose of the miracles was to testify, to authenticate the deity of Jesus. They testified to his Messiahship. It's why, it's why Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 2 
says, says, I know you're a teacher come from God because you wouldn't do the works that you do unless you came from God. So what are some of the works that he's referring to here? Well, let me just give you three. And we've seen those as we've studied these, these, these passages over these last couple months. Remember in John chapter 2 when he was at a wedding in Cana. It was a great old time until the wine ran out. So his mother says, Jesus, take care of this problem. And they couldn't just go down to the local wine store. So he gets the servants to get six large jugs, anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. And he tells the servants to pour water in them. And he says, now go and serve. And it was like the best wine they'd ever had. Testified it to his deity. The, the second was the official son. When Jesus went back to Cana and this, 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 this official, more than likely a Roman official, was, was in Capernaum. His son is dying, so he goes to Cana, and he speaks with Jesus, and Jesus says, go. Your son is being healed. And, and it's like Jesus says, you all remember, the, those of you that were Capernaum, in Capernaum, you knew the very hour that this, this child got better, and this father understood that at the very moment he says, go, your son is well. That's when he started to get well. How about the paralytic? Some of you saw him for 38 years lying at the pool of Bethesda. You've seen him walking around Jerusalem. I said, I said, get up, take your bed. And at that word, he was healed. Jesus is saying here, my works are a megaphone that testify to the deity and you do not hear he says, the Father is the one that gives me the ability to accomplish these things. And then I do them. So he calls his miracles to the stand. He calls his, his works to the stand to corroborate his deity. In fact, later on in John chapter 10, let me put it on the screen. Jesus says this, John chapter 10, verse 37. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I and the Father are one. One God, three persons. So Jesus calls John the Baptist. He calls the witness of his miracles. And then you can hear a stirring in the court. He calls God the Father. He calls God the Father. Look back at verse 32. I skipped over that. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, notice when he says, there is another who bears witness about me. That word another, it's translated two different ways in the Greek. Actually, there's two different words for the word another in the Greek. One means another of a different kind. But this word is another of the same kind. So he's saying, there is another of the same kind that bears witness about me. And when he says bears witness about me, it's in the continuous tense. There is one that is, is another like me, speaking of God the Father, who bears witness about me. John uses this, or Jesus uses this, to remind them that he and the Father are one. 
How does the father bear witness about the son? Well, there's hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Speaking of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, all perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. How about at his conception, when there was all this angelic activity, and then you see the virgin birth, you see the star in the sky that testifies to the birth of the Christ. How about when he was, how about when he was baptized in Mark chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17? When it said that when Jesus went down into the water and came up, it says that, that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And then you could hear a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father continues to testify about the Son. Later on at the transfiguration, then at the resurrection, and then at the ascension, and finally again at Pentecost. In fact, this witness should settle it all. You really don't need any other witnesses. I want you to look at verse 37. And this is where Jesus really confronts his Jewish listeners, his experts in the law. He says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. That's a slam. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes. These were men that spent all day Every day, filling out the scrolls. They would copy the Bibles. We, they, they didn't have printing presses back then. And so what they would do is they would every day, every jot, every tittle, they would go back and they, they, they spent every day of their life. Can you imagine eight, ten hours a day, all you're doing is writing Scripture every day? You think you'd know a lot? You would think so. And then the Pharisees. These were the keepers of the law. They memorized the law, and, and they were all about doing every little aspect of the law. But they worshiped the Scriptures. They, 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 they missed Jesus in the Scriptures. They, these guys were hyper-religious. They were doing their religious duties, but they had no relationship with the Lord. They would never miss a church service. They'd be at every prayer meeting. They would tithe whatever they could tithe. But the word never got from their head to their heart. Notice again what he says. He says, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. I mean, how sad they're in the word of God and they never have heard his, his word. Look at verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you. It's not resting in you. Jesus says in John 15, I can put it on the screen, I believe I have it. He says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus says, I am the vine, you, you are the branches. He says, he that abides in me, he who is vitally connected to me. It is he that bears much fruit. And then he says, in verse, he says in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The reason these Jewish leaders, the reason these scribes were bearing no fruit, they were just doing all these religious activities, is because they were not vitally connected to the vine. And you Christians can be like that. Where they have no vital relationship. God's word's not abiding in them. They, they have, as, as First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, they have a form of godliness but deny the power. That's why in Mark chapter 3, it said Jesus called his disciples to himself. They went up on the mountain so that he could be with them. So we don't just open up our Bibles so that we can mark it off our lists or so we can attain this head knowledge. We open up our Bibles to deepen our relationship with our Lord. Because the scriptures are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Quite an indictment. So Jesus calls first the witness of John, then his works, and then God the Father, and then he calls the fourth witness to the stand. He calls the scriptures themselves. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, it's interesting as I was studying this this week, when he says, search the scriptures, or you search the scriptures, that's actually in the imperative. It's a command. He's saying, go search the scriptures. Unroll your scrolls. You think that because you have scrolls, you have eternal life. But those scriptures, they testify about me. You're missing it. They bear witness about me. In fact, I'm going to ask you, just keep your finger in John chapter 5 and turn back just a couple pages to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So just go back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is after the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus has now been resurrected, and there's two men that are heading off to Emmaus. They've left Jerusalem, and they're sad, and they're dejected. And Jesus came upon them. The resurrected Jesus came upon them, but they didn't recognize him. He didn't reveal himself. And they said, he said, why are you so sad? He said, they said, don't you realize what has just happened? He said, what things? And he said, well, this Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah, this prophet, this good man, he was, he was killed. He was crucified. And look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the, from, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so what he does, he doesn't have a scroll, but he's got the scriptures memorized because he is the word. He is the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. He explains to them, from the prop, from 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 starting with 
starting with Moses and all the prophets. So we would have gone from Deuteronomy, or excuse me, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, the, the first five books of the law, and then he would have taken from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, and he would have just started repeating them, and he would have started explaining all the prophecies of the Messiah. The greatest Bible study ever on earth. I would have loved to have been there. And then he says again in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's amazing is these scribes, these Pharisees, they thought that life came through having a Bible. Through having it, it sits on my coffee table. It looks nice. When I have my Christian friends over, they see it. But he says, these scriptures testify about me. They're all about me. You think life is in the scriptures, but it's not. Kent Hughes, who's a Bible commentator from, lives in Wheaton, Illinois, he, he shares an illustration of this. He says, it's like being up on the top of the Sears Tower, 110 stories, and it's sunset, and you're looking out this beautiful window, and you're seeing the lights come on in the city, and you're, you're seeing the lights along the lake shore as the sun goes down, and it's absolutely breathtaking. And then all of a sudden, this little man is tugging on your shirt. And he looks up at you and he says, isn't that a beautiful window? I love that window. He says, don't you love the way it's framed in to the building? And, and you see that it's a double-paned window. And then he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to do a little study on this, so I'm going to scratch off some of the glass. I'm going I'm to do a little chemical analysis on it. If you give me your name and number, I will send to you what I find out about this glass. He missed the point of the window. It wasn't about the window. It was about what the window revealed, the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is saying here to the scribes and the Pharisees. You think... That in, in searching the scriptures, that in them you have eternal life. But it is, they bear witness about me. Finally, he calls Moses to the stand. The fifth and final witness. Let, let's move to verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, once again, Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. He says, the one who accuses you is the very one you put your hope in. The, the Pharisees, they quoted Moses as if they were Moses. And he's saying, Moses is indicting you. If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. In fact, 
He's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Let me put that on the screen. He says, this is in, in Deuteronomy, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So all the way back in Deuteronomy, thousands of years before the birth of Christ, Moses testifies of the fact that a prophet would arise. Now, how do we know that he was speaking about Jesus? Will you fast forward to Acts chapter 3? And in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 18, let's put that on the screen. It says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Let's keep going. About which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then here it is. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the peoples. Who's he referring to? Well, if you go back to the last slide, let's go back to the last slide real quick. He's referring to Christ. Christ is the one that Moses was referring to. It is Moses that accuses them. So Jesus presents these five witnesses. He, he, he presents John the Baptist. Then he presents Jesus' own words. And he presents God the Father. And then the scriptures. And then Moses. Now, Pam and I, one of the shows we like to watch is called Bull. Anybody seen Bull? It's about Dr. Bull. He's a, he's a trial scientist. And he, he always goes and he helps to, to pick the jury. And then he's a kind of a consultant to the attorney. And what so often happens is the plaintiff, you know, he, he, generally he, uh, Dr. Bull is defending the defendant. And what you see is sometimes a twist where the plaintiff actually is the one that ultimately is indicted. And that's what you see happening here. If you remember in verse 18, the religious leaders, they charged Jesus with saying that he was equal with God, and his testimony and witness confirmed that he is God. Yet in his defense, what Jesus does is he brings a list of an indictments against these religious leaders. And we skipped over some verses, so I'm going to go back to those. Here's the first indictment against the religious leaders. He's saying, you don't have God's word in you. Verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't even have his word in you. Here's the second indictment. He says, you refuse to come to me. This is a willful rejection to come to Christ. And some of you are saying, but I thought God was sovereign in salvation. Well, he is. But we also know the scriptures say that God holds us responsible for rejecting him. How does that all work together? I don't know. But J.I. Packer, who just went home to be with the Lord a couple, year, uh, a couple days ago, wrote a book called uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And what he calls it, is he calls it an antinomy, where two what seemingly opposite 
concepts work perfectly together. And Spurgeon says it's like two parallel lines that don't meet together until they get into heaven. We know that absolutely God is sovereign in salvation, but we also know that God holds us responsible. And that's why the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. He says, you refuse to come to me. You read the scriptures, you memorize them, yet you're unwilling to heed the testimony of them. Thus, you don't come to me for life. Here's the third indictment. He says, you don't have the love of God in you. I mean, these guys were the religious leaders, but they're like, where's the love of God? It's missing. Look at verse 42. He says, they said, excuse me, that's the wrong page. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What an indictment. Fourth, he says, you won't receive me. And the fifth one tells us why. Verse 44, because you seek the glory of man and not the glory of God. You seek the glory of man, not the glory of God. Verse 45 again, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote, oh, excuse me, actually that was back in verse 44. He says, he, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What he's saying, you're all about the glory of man but not about the glory of God. In fact, John Piper says this. He says, you want to be the center, not God. You love your glory and not God's glory. Jesus says, this is the root cause of unbelief. When you glory in God, when you seek in his glory and are satisfied with him, that is when the desire for human glory is broken and you become satisfied with a greater glory. It is when we are focused on our own glory that we miss the glory of God. Jesus accuses these religious leaders about being caught up in their own glory. And finally, he says, you don't believe Moses and you don't believe me. And they were the ones that stood on the words of Moses. So by not believing, they've condemned themselves. These Pharisees, these scribes, they listened to the witnesses yet they still committed to kill Jesus. There was a willful rejection. They would not receive Jesus because they were uh, seeking a different glory. So let me ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is your verdict? Is Jesus liar? Is he lunatic? Or is he, as he says he is, and as the witnesses testified to the fact, is he Lord? Now, I want you to think about that. And I want to go back to that person we talked about at the beginning of the service. The gentleman who was the investigative reporter whose wife became a believer. He had been an atheist all of his life. What happened to him? What did the evidence say? Well, the more evidence accumulated... The more witnesses he examined, the more he saw the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the more that he believed him, and that by believing he could have life in his name. 
This man embraced Christ. He became a teaching pastor at a suburban Chicago megachurch. He was awarded an honorary doctoral degree at Southern Evangelical Seminary for his work on Christian apologetics. Do you know who he was? Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, who went on to, to write A Case for Christ, one of the great books of all time. Then he wrote A Case for Faith. He wrote A Case for Creator. He wrote A Case for Real Jesus. He, he wrote A Case for Christianity. Because he listened to the witnesses, but he also listened to the Holy Spirit that awakened him. And he embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So as our worship team comes up, once again, let me ask you, what is your verdict? And let me say this. What you do with Christ has eternal consequences. If you embrace him as Lord and Savior, turn from your sin. In fact, we're called to repent. If you, return, if you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. You spend eternal life in heaven. But if you reject him, even as, in fact, verse 29 says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the only way we can do good is by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. And that's because we've turned from our sin and we've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Listen, the evidence is overwhelming. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Repent. So what I want us to do now is I want us together to declare his majesty, the fact that he is holy, that he is the one that came to deliver us, that he is our hope. He is the one that raises the dead to life. We're going to declare him as God because that's who he is. We're going to praise him. Father, I thank you for your word and for the truth of Jesus being Lord, King, Sovereign over all. He is who he says he is. And he does what he says he'll do. Lord, it is because of his faithfulness and not ours that we can have eternal life. Father, I pray for anyone today that has never received Christ, that today they would turn from their sins and they would turn to Jesus and be saved and have assurance of eternal life for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.